Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's Thursday, September 2nd. From The Recount, this is the News Items podcast, which is based loosely on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. My guest today is Joe Klein, a veteran journalist who has covered stories all over the world. He's written several books about electoral politics. He's been a columnist for New York Magazine, Newsweek, The New Yorker, and Time. He's also written fiction, most famously Primary Colors, which we talk about a bit at the end of the interview. We started the interview talking about Afghanistan, where Joe reported from on four separate sojourns. He gives me his take on the country's tribal divisions, the role of Pakistan, and President Biden's political thinking when he pulled the plug on the U.S. presence there. We also get into the state of play for America's two parties, how media has changed since Joe and I got our starts, and a political organization he advises called With Honor. Here we go. Hello, Joe. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Hey, John. Great to be here. You've been to Afghanistan, I believe, four times. Tell us about that, and then we'll get to what your take is on the terrible developments. I was there four times, several times. I embedded with uh, U.S. troops in this one town which was about 14 kilometers west of Kandahar. It was Taliban central. When I first went there, Taliban controlled 90% of the, uh, the territory. We had one rifle company there led by a 29-year-old captain named Jeremiah Ellis, with whom I'm still in touch. And that story really is a metaphor for the whole damn thing. That captain sent out his troops, I went out with them, to crowdsource the town to ask people what they wanted. It was the first time in human history that anybody had asked these people what they wanted. We had SERP funds, and what the people wanted was for us to reopen a school that the Canadians built that was on the border between the territory we controlled and the territory the Taliban controlled. And uh, Captain Ellis was about to do that, but the local warlord, whose name was Haji Lala had a different idea. He wanted us to use the SERP funds to dredge and extend a canal from the Argandab River to lands about 15 miles west of the town of Sanjare. And he just happened to own those lands. Mm. And the police chief had some 
property over there as well. And we found out very quickly through U.S. intelligence that Haji Lala had cut a deal with the Taliban to plant poppies there and split the profits 50-50 with the Taliban. So Captain Ellis told him, no, we're not going to do that. And over the course of several trips there, I saw us clear the area, unbooby trap the school. And eventually General Petraeus was there when the school was open. I don't know if it's open right now because that area is Taliban central. But I've been thinking about that story a lot because it's clear that when we were there, the assumption was that we were going to leave and everybody had side deals with the Taliban. And that is why the country folded like cellophane on fire over the last few uh, weeks and months. This was going to happen if we stayed for another 10 years. It was going to happen if we had left 10 years ago. You can argue about details at the margins, but there was always, always going to be a scene at the airport as soon as the Taliban sources within the embassy knew what our plans were. And as you watched the collapse, I guess you would call it, of the last two weeks, how did the people that you embedded with, how did they view it? Well, obviously, there's tremendous sadness and frustration and personal anguish. But I think that it was clear to most people who were there, especially people like, uh, shout out to Jake Wood, who is the co-founder of Team Rubicon and was in a sniper team in Helmand province, that this was a pretty futile proposition. And given how impressive kids like Jeremiah Ellis were in trying to govern these towns and give the Afghan people something that they had never had, you have to have really tremendously mixed feelings about it. And interestingly enough, 10, 11 years ago, we were in a situation where parts of the U.S. government wanted to negotiate with the, the Taliban, mm -hmm. notably Richard Holbrook, and the U.S. military was opposed to it. David Petraeus, at that point, who had succeeded with counterinsurgency strategy in Iraq, was in the process of failing with counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan. And Holbrook wanted to negotiate with the Taliban. Petraeus said, no, give us some more time to really put them back on their heels. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. When you talk to Holbrook about it, can you share his views and how he thought we might negotiate a settlement? Well, he wanted to talk directly to the Taliban. That's the way Dick Holbrook was. Right. I'm sure that he had in the back of his mind a triumphant negotiation where they came back into modified sort of power, talking the game that they're talking now. Right. And that he would receive tremendous credit for it. And Barack Obama would have no choice but to name him Secretary of State. Exactly. So Dayton, too, and then he becomes Secretary of State. Everybody was deluded, John. Everybody <laughs> was deluded about Afghanistan. You know, and it's about time that we as a country started getting smart and more subtle about these things. We keep on blundering into other countries and thinking that we can change their culture. And the fact is, culture is a very sticky thing. It's really hard to change. Now, President Biden, then Vice President Biden, wanted to get out. He argued against the ramp up 
when President Obama sided with the generals. Can you take us through that disagreement, I guess? Actually, John, it starts on September 11th. You know, I knew that we were going to have to retaliate somehow. Right. And I suspected that it would be through special operations. And so the very first thing I did as a journalist was to contact someone I think you know as well, Colonel Russ Howard, who mm-hmm. taught special ops at West Point. Right. Because I never thought that we would be stupid enough to send a land army into Afghanistan, given what happened to everybody from the Mongols to the Brits to the Russians. I mean, it just, you know, it's not a real country. It's a, it's a bunch of tribes who have spent the last thousand years trying to kill each other. Right. Biden agreed with that. And I think that a part of Joe Biden is still pissed off that he wasn't listened to right. back during that time. That seems clear. Biden was very close to Les Gell, the late president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And I talked to both of them at that time. And Les was, of course, Richard Holbrook's best friend. So this all fits together. Right. <laughs> and what they were hoping was to have a scaled back special ops operation. And our special ops and intelligence people were doing a damn good job there. And as much as it pained me because my sympathies were with the kids on the ground like Jeremiah Ellis, it seemed pretty clear, you know, 2009, 2010, when I was there, that the only way that this was going to be resolved was if we figured out a way to do it with the Taliban. There's one other thing I should mention about this, and it is something that infuriates me to this day. And that is the Pakistani rule. Right. You know, George W. Bush on September 14th at the National Cathedral said a really important and very true thing. He said, our enemies are those who fund terrorism and those who harbor terrorists. Now, who funded terrorism? The Saudis. Who harbored terrorists? The Pakistanis. And in fact, the Pakistanis armed the terrorists. And those two countries, the Saudis, And the Pakistanis are our alleged allies. It is infuriating to this day that, you know, members of the Haqqani network of Taliban, you know, would brag about killing American soldiers with American weapons that they'd gotten from the Pakistanis. Now, you know, you may wonder why on earth were we giving aid to the Pakistanis when we knew full well that they were trying to play both sides. And the answer is, they were blackmailing us. They have nukes. Right. They're blackmailing us to this day. One of the main things I learned when I was over in that part of the world and Iraq and Iran and the Middle East is that when you see straight line borders out in that part of the world, you know the folks who lived there didn't draw them. Right. They were drawn by the Brits and the French. And in Afghanistan, there was a straight line drawn across the top of the Hindu Kush Mm -hmm. called the Duran line. And that separated Pashtunistan, the Pashtun nation, which is what this whole battle is all about. And, you know, Pakistan is a very volatile place and remains so because it has like three or four rebellions going on within, within the country by the Sindhs in Karachi, by the Punjabis, by the Baluch out in Quetta, Mm-hmm. And by the, uh, the the Pakistani Taliban, it is Pakistan was a, a bad idea, and it's never really been a nation. And I could say the same for 
Iraq and a lot of in Syria and a lot of other places in that part of the world. You know, I know there's a place called Kurdistan, but it's not a country. Right. And I think that we have to get a lot more sophisticated about tribalism, not only there, but here right. as well. Right. There, there, there's so many moving parts here. What we've done in Afghanistan is made one of the most mineral-rich areas on the face of the earth safe for the Chinese to come in and mine the... Uh, Rare earths. Yes. And the fact is that the Chinese are the Pakistanis' closest allies. And I think that the Pakistanis are probably pretty confident that the Taliban will be grateful for their support and the Chinese will verify that and solidify that. But the thing you got to understand is that rebellion happens from the bottom up, not from the top down. And there are an awful lot of Pashtuns in the tribal areas and, and other areas in the north who still want to have Pashtunistan. Right. It's really hard for anybody, especially someone like me or anybody in the media. And this is something that drives me crazy when you see people on TV who have never been to Afghanistan, never studied Afghanistan, making these vast pronouncements. You're not going to hear any vast pronouncements out of me or anybody else who's been there. Right. You've known Joe Biden, I think, going all the way back probably to his first Senate race, right? Not that far back. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, a couple of times, you know, I would occasionally take the train up to Wilmington with him. We'd go to his red sauce Italian restaurant, and uh, and then I'd take the train back to D.C. You know, he's pretty much as, as advertised. You know, he is who you see. Going out in front of the press the way Joe Biden did August 26th. Um, that had to be one of the worst days of his life, right? Had to be one of his worst. But he stood up there and he didn't flinch. And Joe Biden at bottom has done something that John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump didn't do. He pulled the plug. And he knew had to know that there were going to be consequences. You know, there was going to be a scene at the airport no matter what, but he did it anyway because he believed it was the right thing to do. And I I agree with him about that. I think that probably there's some blame to go around for the haphazard nature of it. They should have been destroying our documents at the embassy throughout. But as I said before, the Taliban had sources in our embassy. Every embassy comes equipped with a lot of local employees. Right. They knew exactly what we were planning, and the Taliban moved accordingly. You know, Joe, the things you could say about him are that he's not naive. He knows Washington really, really well. He's a moderate. He believes in going across party lines, one of maybe the last 12 people in the entire city who are like that. And he's very savvy when it comes to politics. He is someone who for whom the door is always open. That wasn't true with Obama. Right. I once had a conversation with one of Obama's people. They were talking about how relations with the Ohio Democrats in Congress were terrible. And I said, well, why doesn't he just invite him over for a movie and give him some of those White House M&Ms? And this person said to me that Obama believes they'd see right through it. 
they'd see that he was just blowing smoke. And I said, well, of course they'd see through it, but they'd still come, they'd still love it. And Biden is a guy who understands that there are all these little bribes that you can use to grease the wheels of politics. Right, right. (laughs) Having seen Biden over all these years, how has he grown? How do you see him, you know, as a person, as he... Well, he's deepened. I mean, obviously, the the tragedies have, have deepened him. But, you know, I once wrote this very profound sentence. Politicians make the best politicians. And he's a Paul. Yeah. You know, he is in a way who he's always been. And that today means a really tenuous balancing act between the left wing of the Democratic Party and the vast majority of the Democratic Party and Republican moderates. Right. And he's walking that tightrope. And uh, we'll see whether people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez trip him up. You've covered and I've covered, you know, the Democratic Party over too many decades, I guess. Yes. How has it changed since you started doing this? There have been a couple of changes. You know, it changed after Vietnam or during Vietnam and moved significantly to the left. And there was a period when the left really, from George McGovern on to Bill Clinton, had control of the Democratic Party in ways that were incredibly destructive treating criminals as victims rather than criminals. Right. I once asked David Dinkins, who was then mayor of New York, whether he believed there was evil in the world. And he had a lot of trouble answering that question. And Democrats had trouble answering that question. But there is evil in the world, and it has to be dealt with. Bill Clinton brought the party back into the center on issues like crime and welfare reform. And uh, although there wasn't all that much foreign policy to be done, he did send Richard Holbrook to Bosnia and a deal was cut. But since then, over the last 20 years, there has been an awful lot of backsliding. I did the first interview with Hillary Clinton after she became first lady. And I asked her, are two parents better than one? And she said, yes. And that's something that she could never acknowledge when she was running for president because the party had shifted so much to the left. And that's true now. I once asked her, why don't you just talk about the tremendous progress that's been done in the last 50 years? We've lived through, in this country, the most remarkable advance in human rights in the history of the species. Right. Nearly half of Black families now have incomes in the top three quintiles. Gay rights, women's rights, all of this happened in the blink of a historic eye. And why can't Democrats say to the folks in Appalachia and elsewhere, look, we've come a long way. There's a ways yet to go. Want to thank you for being a big part of this. And, uh, Let's congratulate each other for the progress we've made. But Democrats are not allowed to acknowledge that any progress has been made, right. which is, you know, incredibly self-destructive. Just as sort of a quick one, but one thing that strikes me is that I, I just don't understand the power of it. But I, I think two years ago, I didn't know what woke meant, right? Somebody, <laughs> somebody said to me, I, I think it was Jill Abramson said, well, it's a woke thing. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Do you have a sense of just how that came to be such a force? 
came out of academia. Right. And it's still based in academia. And if you look at something as precise as how black people voted in the New York Democratic mayoral primary, mm-hmm. working class blacks voted for Eric uh, Eric Adams. Right. And I've lived in, you know, I lived in a black neighborhood in Brooklyn in the 1980s. And all my neighbors were incredibly tough on crime. Right. And they voted for Eric Adams. But the college-educated Blacks in the ritzier neighborhoods voted for uh, Mayor Wiley. And this is something that comes out of, I mean, Spike Lee was one of my neighbors in Brooklyn, and he was a middle-class kid. And I think that there is an awful lot of guilt going on in the academically trained Black middle class that is easily transferable to white liberals who condescend to black people continually. Now, there are grievances. There is racism. I've seen it. I have friends who've experienced it. But we're not going to have a solution to the racial situation in this country until you can have an honest conversation. And you can have an honest conversation if all you do is agree with the most militant members of the black community, who, by the way, do not represent the majority of the black community. Yeah, that was clear in the primaries in 2020, right? Yeah, it was the black community in South Carolina who gave us Joe Biden. Right, right. You've covered the Republican Party as well over over these uh, few decades, I will say. What happened? I mean, there's Gingrich, there's, you know, there are these sort of markers, but... I think that in a way, and I've known Newt for a long time, and Newt in a way is a distillate of what happens to the Republican Party. I used to have, back at the turn of the 90s, really great, interesting policy conversations with him. Right. He had a lot of really good ideas, especially when it came to urban affairs. He was a smart guy. He, would, he also knew the military very well. But he was a, he was a nerd. And all of a sudden, um, the television camera, he saw that he could use his wicked voice very effectively on TV. And he started it by turning on the cameras in the House of Representatives and talking to empty chambers. And for too many Republicans, this is also true of Democrats, by the way, you know, for too many Republicans, the performance side of it became a major factor. And the echo chamber that Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and others provided you know, I, I once asked Elaine Kmark, who is one of the uh, Democratic centrists, about 10 years ago, I said, you know, the cliche is that the Republican Party, the boss of the Republican Party is Rush Limbaugh. Right. Who's the boss of the Democratic Party? And she said, black women. And that has really played out over time. But I think that it was too damn much showbiz and cynicism. And also... There's a difficulty, I know you know this, and I certainly know it, in trying to be a moderate. You know, it's really easy to get attacked from the wings. And life seems really simple when you're an extremist. I mean, the first story that I ever covered was busing in Boston in the 1970s. Common ground. And I was out on the streets. I was working for the underground press then. I was out on the streets, and I couldn't find any black parents who were in favor of busing. Right. Not a single one who was sending their kids into Southie. And 
The fact is that reality, you know, I went into that as a classic liberal. I was in favor of integration and all that. But my newspaper, which was the real paper, was the only paper in town that came out against busing because I couldn't find anybody who was in favor of it, except suburban liberals. Right, right. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Joe Klein. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the podcast. Another question I wanted to ask you, we've talked about before, I guess, in these few decades, what happened to the press? I know that's a <laughs> that's a two-hour question, but... It is. In fact, it is an absolutely crucial question. Two things that I can think of happened to the press. The first was technology. I mean, when I was a kid, there were three flavors of ice cream, three network news broadcasts, and now we have, you know... Baskin Robbins and Ben and Jerry's and uh, and a thousand cable stations. Right. And so, what happened was competition. All of a sudden, everybody was aware that they had to win over readers or viewers, and most of them weren't really interested in the details of the Iran nuclear deal, or of healthcare for that matter. And so that happened. And that led to the greatest change in journalism during my lifetime, which was the default position when I got into business at the turn of the 70s, except for the underground press, and uh, was skepticism. I mean, you know, covering busing in Boston made me into it, turned me from a cynic into a skeptic. And that was the correct default position for a journalist to have. My favorite questions to ask a politician after they made, you know, a statement were, Really? <laughs> and no kidding. No kidding would get them talking like crazy and really revealing stuff they didn't want to reveal. But it was skepticism. And that turned into cynicism because cynicism sold on TV. And if you got on TV, you would get lectures. And if you were on TV, you had to be from the left or from the right. You know, the 2000 presidential campaign. I conducted an experiment, which was to write favorable stories about each of the four main candidates. I wrote favorably about George W. Bush's faith-based initiatives and the stuff he'd been doing in education in, in Texas. I wrote favorably about Bill Bradley's health care plan. I wrote favorably about John McCain, because we all wrote favorably about John McCain. <laughs> right. And uh, I never got around to Gore 
in part because his campaign was so cynical, but that's a long story. Right. But the fact is, each time I wrote a favorable article about those people, I was accused in print of being in the tank to George, having fallen in love with George W. Bush, right. being in the tank to Bill Bradley. And when we were all accused, rightfully so, of being in the tank to John McCain. And the fact is that the toughest story for a young political journalist to write starting in the 1990s, became a favorable story about a politician. Right. You know, that was just death. If you weren't cynical about a politician, you were in the tank. Right. For me, that was hard in part because I was trained in a lot of ways. My mentor was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and I couldn't be cynical about him. Right. And his existence taught me that there were a bunch of politicians, not all of them, and maybe not even most of them, on the left and the right, who were real American patriots and who were really trying to do the right thing. And sometimes that meant compromising. In fact, usually it meant compromising. But that sensibility was discouraged on television. You know, if you were somewhere in the mushy middle, although my middle wasn't so mushy, it was pretty fearsome when I wanted it to be. Right. But if you were in the middle, you didn't you weren't good TV. You know, they wanted to have, you know, from the left and from the right, that sold. And uh, it was an act of utter irresponsibility on our part. I've watched it happen at Fox where they thought that they were informing the audience and sort of setting the table for how to look at the issues. And then it switched to the audience essentially programming the network. And that's where they are now. They're now so far down the road that they can't get back. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson is utterly a captive of the furthest right. I knew Tucker Carlson when he was sane, and so did you. <laughs> he was charming. He was moderate. I sat next to him on buses. I don't recognize this guy. Mm, it's amazing. This is a phenomenon that I'd, I'd, I'd be curious about your, your feelings about. There are politicians and TV people who have completely lost their minds. And, and, and I will give you a very specific example. The last book I wrote was called Charlie Mike, and it was about this generation of veterans becoming really great public servants. Right. And one of the people I focused on was Eric Greitens, who started a program called The Mission Continues, which was an excellent program that saved lots and lots of lives. Last seen, Eric Greitens, who came from a Democratic family, who was a moderate Democrat, is you know running for the Senate as a total Trumper, doing commentary on Newsmax. And I'm not in touch with him now. It would be just too painful. But what happens to people like him and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and all the rest of these people who are very well educated and yet become complete populist demagogues. I think it goes to the cynicism, right? That that's the ticket to power and that's where they go. I mean, the candidates, the putative candidates for the 2024 presidential nomination on the Republican side, all of them employ a service that tells them how much time they're getting on Fox News and mm -hmm. Uh, there's actually a service that does this, and I don't know for a fact, but I would venture to say that that data probably has more to do with what they say than anything else. Well, you know, the interesting thing, John, is this. You may remember that when I was 
political columnist for Time magazine, the same years that I was going to Afghanistan. You know, I came back from one trip seeing all these white people shaking their fists on television. It was the Tea Party. And I realized that I knew more about the Middle East than the Middle West. And so I started taking road trips out into the country to find out what people were actually thinking. And I remember I was in this one small town in Iowa, and I had this little town meeting with 12 couples, married couples. All the women were Democrats and all the men were Republicans, but they were all moderates and they were infuriated with the press. They said, why do you spend so much time concentrating on the Tea Party? We know exactly who those people are. They come to the town council meetings and complain about fluoridization. Right. You know, they are extremists. And I believe to this day that the vast majority of Americans are neither left nor right, are pragmatic. And yet we've been playing to both sides. Both sides sell. And it's been my operative fantasy, as you've known for at least 30 years, that there would be some kind of radical middle that would emerge. And um, it just ain't there. You're actively involved with a group called With Honor. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think that would be uh, something that our listeners should know about. Well, With Honor is a political action committee. It's led by a terrific guy, former Marine captain named Rye Barcott, who lives in Charlotte. And With Honor raises money for post-9-11 veterans, veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, who want to run for the Congress. But they only get the money if they sign a pledge agreeing to become part of a bipartisan caucus. The caucus is called Country First. Right. And we've elected 22 of them. I think it's 10 Republicans, 12 Dems. And it's been very difficult for them to work together, especially during the Trump era, because a number of the Republicans had to toe the party line while they were working quietly with Dems on things like environmental issues and uh, national service issues. But I think that groups like that and the No Labels, the Problem Solvers Caucus, are things that give me a tremendous amount of hope. I believe that this generation of veterans, all of whom volunteered, many of whom had to govern these towns in Afghanistan the way I saw Jeremiah Ellis do, they have received the best possible training for public service. They know what government can do. Government can get people killed. And all too often you watch these these folks on TV, both politicians and journalists, bloviating about government doing this or we should do that in this or that country, never having had the experience of seeing a friend murdered or killed in battle. Right. And I think that that sort of sobriety and ballast is really what American politics needs right now. And the fact that it's bipartisan makes me even more happy. A man named Janan Ganesh, who was a columnist for the Financial Times shortly after President George H.W. Bush died, he wrote a column which I thought was right, which was that that generation, having had a brush with the complete collapse of civilization, was much more prudent, to borrow H.W.'s words, or much more aware of just how dangerous the world can be, and that with the passing of that generation, you 
have a this current generation, Biden obviously excluded, but that are reckless, essentially. And one thing that encourages, gives me hope about the future of politics is that with honor does have, mm-hmm. uh, those people do have an understanding of what happens when things go completely off the rails. One guy to watch, um, with honor, has just endorsed its first gubernatorial candidate. Really? Yes. Wes Moore, who's an African-American, former army captain, author of a book called The Other Wes Moore, is running for governor of Maryland. And I've known Wes for 12 years now. And um, I went to jail with Wes. Really? On what charge? Well, to help out. Wes was going into the juvie prisons in Maryland because he had written this book, The Other Wes Moore, about how someone who grew up you know, a couple of blocks away from him, had the exact same name, was serving time in prison, life in prison for murdering someone. And Wes wanted to figure out what was the difference between his upbringing and that guy's. And the bottom line was the military. And so Wes and I would go into juvenile prisons and the kids would read his book and he would sit there with them and answer questions. And I remember one night, he and I went out to a pub afterwards and we were having, having a beer. He asked me how my life was going. And I said, you know, Wes, it really sucks right now. I'm in the middle of this stupid debt ceiling argument in Washington, which makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm giving it almost all my time. And he says, man, I don't understand how you can live like that, how you can go on like that. He says, what gives you hope for the future? And I looked at Wes and I said, you. <laughs> And from that day to this, I've been encouraging him to run for office, as I would with Jake Wood of uh, Team Rubicon. I don't know what political party Jake's a member of, but I know that he is the kind of guy who was a natural leader. Actually, when you first introduced me to Rai Barkov, we were talking about things that could stitch the country back together again. And you and I both said national service. Is there progress on that? Well, National service is one of those issues that everybody's in favor of, except they're not really. Right. And the fact is to have real national service, to have it be something like the military experience, where you get to have brotherhood and sisterhood with people who are very much unlike you. Right. You go through boot camp. You know, for me, real national service, you have to have the moral equivalent of a boot camp. And the problem is that Democrats are opposed to real national service as teachers, as cops, as as other emergency responders because of the public employees unions who are opposed to having those sort of people. And Republicans are opposed to it because it costs money. Right. But I think that there are, you know, there are little sprouts here and there. There's now a program that's just beginning to come to scale that brings high school students from red and blue states together in summer camps, the way Seeds of Peace used to work for uh, Israeli and Palestinian kids. But I think at some point, government has to become something that each of us does for part of our life, rather than something that we pay other people to do. Right. What are other things that sort of give you hope about the future and for your kids and your grandkids? Well, I think that what I was talking about before is, the, you know, the most important thing, which has been the incredible progress that we've had in human rights. Uh, you know, I still live in an integrated neighborhood in Westchester, 
And that neighborhood wouldn't have existed 50 years ago. Right. And I think that rates of intermarriage, I always love to see those going up. And the progress that's being made in, you know, the Latino community who are assimilating into our society very much the way the Italians did a a century ago. They're socially conservative, they're small business owners, and if the Democrats continue to condescend to them, they're going to lose them to the Republicans, but only if the Republicans get sane. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that the idea of America, this great mishmash of cultures, going back to the four British colonial migrations, that were incredibly different, but were synergistic. I totally believe in the idea of this country, but I think that we have been too prosperous in a way. You know, I, uh, I've written about this a couple of times, but Machiavelli said that Ozio is the greatest enemy of a republic. What's Ozio? Ozio in Italian is indolence. And Machiavelli was worried about How do you keep a republic coherent when it's not at war? And we have had the greatest experiment in Ozio in human history during the last 75 years since the end of World War II. We've had incredible prosperity. You know, the only existential threat we had was the Soviet Union, and that was too spectacular to be even credible in most people's minds. And that's one of the reasons why I believe so much in service. We have to get back to the point where people understand that citizenship isn't just a passive sit on the couch and shake your fist at a TV thing. It is getting involved in any which way you want. And I think that this is going to be our greatest challenge to get past the kind of indolent sensibility that we've developed over the last three or four generations, starting with our generation, John. I mean, we were were the original offenders. Right. You wrote a a great book about Bill Clinton. It was written by Anonymous and then later made into a movie. And I told somebody I was interviewing you for the podcast, and and they said, find out if he liked John Travolta better or Emma Thompson. So I'm asking that question on behalf of a friend. Okay. The deal was—actually, I wrote two books about Bill Clinton, one fiction. Yes, Primary Colors, and the other nonfiction called The Natural, and both happily were bestsellers. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, I had a real problem with, with uh, John Travolta. I felt that, I mean, it's re- it was really a lot of fun. As I was writing the book, my wife and I were casting it, and we had cast Emma Thompson in the Susan Stanton slash Hillary Clinton role. Right. And, and Kathy Bates was the character in my mind throughout when I invented, you know, Libby, my six-foot lesbian um, heroine of the, of, of the story, or I guess you have to say hero now, nowadays, I thought Travolta was not the right choice because he, he was a terrific actor and he, and he could convey all of the silliness and a lot of the empathy. But the most important quality that Bill Clinton had and that the character in Primary Colors had, was an absolutely stunning, riveting intelligence. And Travolta couldn't convey that. Right. Emma Thompson is a very smart human being, and she could convey it very easily. And what did you ever imagine 
uh, growing up, I guess, that, that uh, Mike Nichols would make a movie of your work? No, I never did. And he was just just a wonderful human being and, and a pleasure always to be around. He was one of the most charming human beings I've ever met. And Elaine May as well. I mean, during Elaine May wrote the screenplay for Primary Colors. Right. You know, we did some lunches together where we worked on dialogue. And I, there I was sitting in the middle of a Nichols and May routine and contributing. And <laughs> it was, it was it, you know, it was absolutely incredible. A dream come true, right? Yes. What are you working on now, if you can talk about it? Well, I'm thinking a lot about the race issue and about whether it's possible to describe to, you know, for uh, whether it's possible to write a book about black people if you're a white person, number one. But number two, that takes to task the two stereotypes, you know, that, that distort our view of black people. From the right, the stereotype is that they're all just a bunch of barbarians and criminals. From the left, the stereotype is that they're all a bunch of left-wing militants. Right. And the fact is that we have been so lucky, given what we did to black people, given the fact that our form of slavery was the most punitive in human history, the only one that really broke up families, and the fact that they so dearly want to be part of this, want to be American citizens, want their kids to go to college. You know, I think that I'm just beginning to explore it and um, and I'll see whether anybody would even publish something like that. <laughs> um, you know, you were asking about woke before. This is the opposite of woke. Right, right, right. This is alert. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you very much for joining us. It's been terrific. It's my pleasure, John, as always. By the way, can I just take this one second to congratulate you on news items? Um, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I got to say, it is the very best, and it is quirky, and I love quirkiness, and it's really smart. The science and financial stuff are absolutely essential, and you remain one of the very most astute political observers I've ever known. I learn something from it every day, and it's become a real a refuge for a lot of other people I know who have been involved in policy over the years. Well, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Billy Gardella. See you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.